Well, good afternoon. We'll go ahead and, and get started uh, here with our session. Uh, this is uh, Looking for Truth in All the Wrong Places, uh, Practicing Biblical Discernment in the Misinformation Age. Uh, I will pray, and if uh, this is not the session you wanted to be in, you can slip out, um, <laughs> and no one will notice. All right, let me pray. Father, we are grateful to you for this conference. We are grateful for the, the truths that we have already heard proclaimed from your word. We uh, do ask that you would help us even now to, to try to, to apply your word to every aspect of our life, and especially one that's increasingly dominating so much of our lives. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I note there in a, a post-truth society, and I say a post-truth society because that's, that's what we've kind of been labeled uh, that, that was the word of the year uh, for the Oxford Dictionary in 2016, talking about uh, what we now live in. People don't seem to care about the truth. Uh, conspiracy theories are proliferating all over the place, and some of them we find out actually were true, and then you're like, so what are we supposed to do with these kinds of things? And, and so, and uh, we are increasingly online. Uh, it's almost no one uh, is offline. At some point in time, you're connected. You're, we don't have physical newspapers anymore. We're, we're getting our news online. This is increasingly where we are. And so I, I wanted to, to try to think a little bit about how do we practice discernment both in what we read and interpret and then what we actually say and share online. And I think this is important because as Abraham Lincoln once said, you cannot believe everything you read on the internet. And so with that in mind, I think it's especially important for us as Christians. Uh, I began to be burdened by this in some ways several years back. I started to know, noticing a trend in which uh, I'd see a bunch of friends on Facebook talking about this thing, isn't this thing terrible? And uh, then you begin to look at it and you're like, well, that thing never even happened. Like, so why did everyone seem to think this thing happened? Uh, one example, I remember uh, Costco uh, got in all this trouble because they labeled the Bible fiction. Can you believe it? I mean, they would label the Bible fiction, and then you look into it, and you find out it was a clerical error, kind of like, you know, they accidentally labeled the jelly peanut butter. Like, they weren't trying to make a statement. It's just the kind of thing that happens every now and then. And yet, a bunch of people were getting upset about it. And so, I, I think we've not grown a whole lot <laughs> in this year since then. I don't know that we're better at distinguishing truth from error on some of these things. And so, I want to begin briefly by just saying, what is biblical discernment? Um, in some ways, biblical discernment is what we need to apply to every aspect of our life. A big part of our life now is being online. And so we certainly want to apply it here. And that's where my focus is going to be. I think a lot of things we're going to talk about could go more broadly. I'll say as well, my, my uh, thoughts here on biblical discernment were influenced heavily by a series my pastor David Dorn did several years ago on biblical discernment. I don't actually have them. I just have my notes from there. So I, don't, uh, I can't credit uh, his sermons. I actually don't know where they are now. Um, but that's where these notes uh, were at least influenced by, and I don't know if I ever tweaked them. If I did, I probably made them worse, and I apologize for that. Uh, so thinking about biblical teaching on discernment, why is discernment important? It's important because there are false teachers and there are false ideas. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22, don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test all things. And what's going on at this point in time, there were prophetic utterances. The Spirit was working. There was still revelation happening because the canon had not yet been closed. And sometimes people were giving prophecies that were false. There were false spirits involved. And so one response would be, 
Cut it all off. Don't listen to it. And Paul says, no, no, don't do that. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. What should you do? Test all things. And that really is the, uh, the idea of um, examining metals, or the word was even used to do, talk about examining political candidates. You're putting something to the test. You're evaluating. You're seeing whether or not it matches up with what it's supposed to be. And then what do you do? Well, you hold on to what is good, and you stay away from every kind of evil. And so you, you are practicing discernment. You're distinguishing this is good, this is evil. And it's important because there are false teachings. There are false teachers. 1 John 4, 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he doesn't say, I think it's accurate, don't believe any spirit. So don't believe every spirit. We've got to begin to test these things, to evaluate, is this really from God or not? Is this his truth? Or not. Or 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit explicitly says, in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And that's, I think we're seeing kind of a trend. We, we forget the fact that what's our battle in this world? It's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and spirits. And I think Satan is working online. I think he's utilizing this as a means of, of deceiving people and pulling them away. And so as pastors, as church leaders, we want to ourselves protect ourselves and also think about how can we protect our flock from dangerous teaching that is happening online. But we also need it not just because there is false teaching, but this is a, a sign of our spiritual growth. That the way that we grow is through continuing to practice and grow in discernment. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. A mature person is someone who can see the difference between good and evil. And they can do this because they have practiced discernment. They've trained themselves. They've consistently been able to say, this is good, this is evil. And the more and more they do it, the better they are at it, and the more mature they are. The more they're growing, the more they're able to handle the truth of God's word. And I think this verse shows us that spiritual maturity and discernment is not automatic. You don't just become more discerning because you get older. I had a birthday, so now I'm more discerning than I was last year. It doesn't happen that way. And we might even say you can be worse at it than you used to be. Uh, because in the, in the broader passage, he, he says they've become dull of hearing. And that become dull of hearing seems to imply not quite as sharp as even used to be. Kind of taking a step back in some ways. And so I assume the context would say if how you become mature is through training your senses, distinguishing good and evil, how do you become dull of hearing? Not doing that. If you aren't practicing it, you're losing it. And so we need to constantly be seeking to, to practice discernment in every area of our life. So understanding if that's why it's important, what is it? And, and we've already begun to see what it is. He Hebrews 5 would tell us that discernment is the ability to see the difference between good and evil, between wisdom and folly, 
between truth and error, between things that are excellent and things that are not excellent. That's what discerning is. You are distinguishing. You are differentiating. You are saying this thing is not like this thing. And that's what we begin to teach on some level to kids when they're very little, right? That's a circle. It's not a square. That's a square, right? These are the red things. These are the blue things. And we're, we're being able to distinguish these. When this thing is not like the others. And that's what we're seeking to do in the spiritual realm, in the area of ideas and truths. And I think as well, if we look at Scripture, we see the discernment evaluates evidence or circumstances and draws proper conclusions. So you'll see there Matthew 16, 1 to 3. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached and, and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. And since he's saying this, you can look at evidence and you can draw a conclusion in the physical realm. I can see this is what the weather's going to be like in light of what's happening here. You should be doing the same thing in the spiritual realm. You should be able to look at things and be able to say, okay, so in light of this truth, this is what I need to do, or this is how I need to act, or this is the conclusion I need to draw. And this is what we see in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs, um, actually, the next, next passage I want to point to is, is 1 Corinthians 11, because I think that actually is, is a verse that would, would indicate the same idea about discerning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine: For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I, I note there, I, I think I have the CSV and the rest of this. Um, I did ESV there because the word there does really mean discerning. So how are they not discerning the body? And I think what we'd say is the way they are acting is inappropriate in light of the truth that we are part of the body of Christ. So what are they doing? Well, the wealthy are coming and they're feasting and they're not waiting for everyone to come and, and they're not allowing the poor to be able to partake. And, and in acting in this way, they're not acting in accordance with the body. And so they're not seeing we're all one body. We all eat of one bread, right? That's what Paul says. We all drink of one cup, right? So what is the conclusion you should make? Don't do what you're doing. You're not discerning the body. You're not recognizing if this is what the body is, then this is inappropriate. And so you're looking at evidence, you're looking at truth, and you're reaching proper conclusions. I see as well in Proverbs 22. A sensible person sees danger and takes cover, but the inexperienced keep going and are punished. And so he's able to look ahead and say, there's a problem. He looks at evidence, he looks at facts, he looks at circumstances, and draws a right conclusion, but the foolish person doesn't do that. Inexperienced the naive. Proverbs 24, 30 to 34. I went by the field of a slacker, by the vineyard of one lacking sense. Thistles had come up everywhere. Weeds covered the ground and the stone wall was ruined. What did I do? Well, I saw and I took it to heart. I looked and I received instruction and I drew a right conclusion. Right? A little sleep, a little slumber, with a folding of hands to our arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, and your need like a bandit. And so this is what discernment is. 
It's distinguishing truth from error. It's looking at information and drawing wise and right and good conclusions. So if that is what discernment is, how do we begin to, to work towards applying this online? And I will confess, this is a, next section is a somewhat haphazard collection of things that I think have helped me, that I think would help generally people, but I don't know that I can definitively say this is biblical truth. And so some of this is a take it for what it's worth, right? Then we'll go back and end with a little bit more firm, here's biblical principles to make sure we're applying, okay? So some practical considerations, some things that I think probably would help us generally as we're working through this. First, consider how the medium affects the message. Uh, the book that you just received this afternoon, Digital Liturgies, is talking about this in many ways. That the online world is designed in ways to cause us to think and to act and to interact in certain ways. It's, it's very, it's, it's designed for quick, constantly moving interaction. And, and, and it seems like increasingly quicker and faster, right? Because now it's not, you know, three-minute videos, it's 30-second videos, and we moved from reading blog posts to reading short updates on, on Facebook or, or Twitter or things like that. And it's designed to, to make you, when you're reading an article, there's a hyperlink there. And what do you do? I click that hyperlink. And now I'm reading a different article. I didn't even finish that one. And now I'm over here. And oh, there's no video. And so I'm not watching this video. And, and so I'm moving around, not really designed for me to stop and think deeply and carefully. And maybe you've, Recognize this when you spend a lot of time online and then you go to like read a book. Is it hard? Harder than it used to be, maybe? You're like, it used to be, I can sit down and read a book. It's because we're being shaped by these things, which, which makes us think maybe we shouldn't be doing a lot of our deep reflection online. Maybe this isn't the place we should look for truth. Maybe we should realize. This is not the place that we're going to do our best teaching and our best instruction because it's not the place where people learn very well. I uh, said it before. You've probably heard it before. How often do you see an online argument end with someone being like, I'm convinced. This was helpful. <laughs> Almost never, right? And what do we think? Well, I'm going to convince him this time. Realize how the medium is affecting the message. Secondly, remember that expertise in one area does not transfer to the other areas. This, I think, is important on two levels. One, if you grew to trust someone because of what they said about topic A or, or issue A, there's a tendency to think, oh, when they start talking about topic B, they know what they're talking about. But very often they don't. And so when you're listening to people and you're hearing people, don't think just because they're really good here, they're really good elsewhere. And the reverse of that is hopefully if you're a pastor, you are your church's expert on studying and teaching God's word. And the danger is this, and, and I'll probably hit this a few times because I think this is a big issue. Occasionally, like I said, you'll hear someone talk about A, and then you'll believe them on B. But if you know something about B, they start talking about it, you're like, they have no idea what they're talking about here. What does that potentially make you start to do? Well, maybe they don't know anything about A either, 
right? So if you're supposed to be an expert on God's word and you're online pontificating about things you don't know what you're talking about, what does that potentially do to you? Maybe people start saying, well, maybe he doesn't know as much as I thought earlier. Because I will say, I have been amazed at how many people who are public intellectuals are apparently private idiots. Because once they are no longer have a filter of all these things, keeping them from saying the first thing that pops into their mind, you realize they're not that much smarter than anyone else. And I think there's a proverb that says, maybe you should just keep your mouth close so they don't realize that. Maybe we should take that to heart. Third, beware the Murray-Gelman amnesia effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. Uh, It's maybe not a well-known idea. It comes from this talk by Michael Crichton. He's the author of Jurassic Park and and different things like that. Um, He did a talk several years ago about why uh, you should never trust media when it speculates. The media is constantly speculating now. They're no longer saying, this is the truth, this is what happened. They're saying, this is what's going to happen in light of what this just happened, right? So this new bill is now going to have cause this effect, and it's going to do this. And he says, it almost never comes true. And what happens is, we still give them credence. We still tend to trust them. And, and he's talking specifically about media institutions. I'd say in general, there is a tendency for us when we're reading things online to somehow give them greater credence than we would if we're just talking with people. So let me read his excerpt here. Media carries with a credibility that is totally undeserved. You have all experienced this, and what I call the Murray Gelman amnesia effect. I call it by this name because I once discussed it with Murray Gelman, and by dropping a famous name, I imply greater importance to myself and to the effect than it would otherwise have. Briefly stated, the Gelman amnesia effect works as follows. You open the newspaper to an article on some subject you know well. In Murray's case, physics and mind show business. You read the article, See, the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often the article is so wrong, it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these the wet streets cause rain stories, papers full of them. In any case, you read with exasperation or amusement with the multiple errors in the story, then turn the page to a national or international affairs and read with renewed interest as if the rest of the paper was somehow more accurate than about far off Palestine than it was about the story you just read. You turn the page and forget what you know. That is the Gelman amnesia effect. I'd point out it does not operate in other arenas of life. In ordinary life, if someone consistently exaggerates or lies to you, you soon discount everything they say. In court, there is a legal doctrine of falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus, which means untruthful in one part, untruthful in all. But when it comes to media, and I think it also does in some ways apply to online kinds of things that we read, we believe against evidence that it's probably worth our time to read other parts of the paper. And in fact, it almost certainly isn't. The only possible explanation for our behavior is amnesia. I, I, I think for some reason, we think this person has a big platform. This person has a big following. They must know what they're talking about. That's the effect he's saying here, right? We give credence because they're some kind of institution. And instead of saying, well, they've got a big following. They've got a massive podcast. They've got a massive YouTube channel. They must know what they're talking about. We should consistently say, when I hear them, do they sound like they know what they're talking about? When I listen to them, they sound like they know what they're talking about. And if pretty regularly in the things I know, they don't know what they're talking about, I should be pretty skeptical that they do know what they're talking about elsewhere. And so guard ourselves against the tendency to give credence and credibility to things that do not deserve it. 
Fourth, not everyone's opinion should count the same. The online world has certainly developed a democratization of ideas and voices. And that was in many ways the goal of the World Wide Web. Now, anyone has a voice. And the problem is not everyone should really have a voice. Uh, hopefully, you, you could at least understand in this level, um, if, if Dr. Compton, a man who has multiple hours of graduate and postgraduate work studying God's word and has invested 40 plus years in teaching and studying God's word, and he comes and says, you know, as, as I've looked at this, this is what the text seems to say. And then an 18-year-old guy comes up to me and says, well, I just read that passage the other day, and I think it says this. I should not say, well, 50, you know, 50-50, who's to say? Could Dr. Compton be wrong and this guy be right? It's possible. What's more likely? There actually is expertise. People do know more than other people. Some people should be listened to more than other people. And just because someone says something online doesn't mean, well, hey, we have to listen to what everyone has to say. No, we shouldn't actually treat everyone the same. We should have the discernment to say, this person's earned a reason to be heard. This person has not earned a reason to be heard. Could they be right? Yes. Doesn't mean I run to them. I want to look for the people who have earned that right. Fifth, consider the source. And here I'm specifically, if I can say it this way, the, the source being, as I've looked at what this person tends to say and argue, do they tend to say whatever their side or tribe is saying? So as soon as the issue comes up, if person A is for it, I know this person B is going to be against it. Or if group A is against it, I know group B is going to be for it. And, and in fact, five years ago, they were reversed. That's the kind of person I don't want to listen to. The person I, I want to listen to is the person who is generally on the side of group A. But when this issue came up, he said, you know what? I, I actually disagree with group A. And I will do so publicly. Because that's someone who at least is, in theory, trying to build on principle. They care about truth and not just sides. And so I shouldn't, in a sense, be able to predict what someone's going to say based on what, what someone else says. I should be able to predict what they're going to say based upon what I know them to value and what I know them to believe. And so and that's what I mean by consider the source. Sixth, seek to read and argue charitably. So, so let me give you two examples uh, that I have here. Uh, question, David, uh, Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, after the Charlottesville uh, you know, neo-Nazi rally, um, he referred to the neo-Nazis as fine people because he pointed out there was fine people on both sides of this rally. Is that true or not? Well, in the footnote, I give you three articles from people who argue very strenuously. People are lying when they say that, or at best have no clue what really happened because Donald Trump actually initially said, I'm not going to quote him here, something along the lines of, you had neo-Nazis and white supremacists, those people should be uh, condemned entirely, but you also had other people, and there were fine people on both sides, and so they say it's completely taken out of context. David French, 
Uh, and I, I bring this up because these are both statements that people often say, well, Trump always talked about fine people on both sides. That shows he was a racist. People often say, well, David French, you know, he's a squish because he said, you know, drag queen story hour was a blessing of liberty. And I gave you another article of someone who said, that's not really what he was emphasizing. He wasn't saying drag queen story hour itself was a blessing of liberty. He was saying the fact that uh, people can put forward their own belief system and it's not suppressed by the government is a blessing of liberty. Now, even listening to that, you might have been inclined to think, well, one of those is maybe not quite the same as the other. And my guess is there might be a little bit of that inclination because you like one of them more than the other. I think probably the people who are writing these articles arguing for it are people who like the guy they're arguing for. Um, and that's because the people you like, you read very charitably. You give them all the benefits of the doubt. The people you don't like, you don't read very charitably at all. You jump onto every simple mistake they might make. And I think in general, we should strive to read everyone charitably. To do our best to really understand what they're saying. And when we're arguing with them, to argue with what they're really saying. Not to just find something that we can beat them on the head with. But to really try to get at what they're saying. And in fact, we need to ask the question, have I accurately and faithfully represented the other's view? In other words, would they agree with the representation? Not necessarily the criticism, right? <laughs> but if I say, so this is what this person believes, and this is what they hold, and this is what they, they argue for, they'd say, yeah, that's right. And in fact, I, I really think my goal, and I think our goal generally as Christians should be, I want to present their view better than they can. That, that you maybe heard straw man arguments. Um, straw man arguments are where you, you kind of give up a belief that they don't really hold and then you burn it because it's so, so weak. I, I generally try to steal man arguments. Steal man arguments is which I say, I try to take their argument, I make it even better than they made it. Because I want to, if I think they're wrong, I want to show that they're wrong in, against the strongest argument they have for. And I, I think that's generally what we should seek to be do as we're reading and interacting with each other online. Seventh, you rarely can do your own research. I see this phrase pop up quite a bit with people online. And, and usually it's set in opposition to, you know, don't, don't trust what someone else is telling you. Do your own research. So I have a quote here from an article, and I'll, I'll say this out at the beginning. I don't necessarily agree with everything the article is saying, but I think what he says here is very accurate. There's an old saying I've grown quite fond of recently. You can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. When most of us research an issue, what we're actually doing is formulating an initial opinion the first time we hear about something, evaluating everything we encounter after that through that lens of our gut instinct, finding reasons to think positively about the portions of the narrative that support or justify our initial question, opinion, and then finding reasons to discount or otherwise dismiss the portions that detract from it. I, I think that's how I tend to operate. I think that's how I see most people tend to operate. Can I think this way? And then it's not, I'm just like really trying to, I'm looking for arguments in support of what I believe, and I'm looking to dismiss arguments against what I believe. That's my tendency. But in addition to that, it's actually impossible for us not to trust what other people say and to do our own research. Because think about what actually is research, right? So primary research is you 
if you're writing a word, let's say you're, you're, you're studying what did Martin Luther, uh, you know, teach when he was, you know, uh, at, at the University of Edinburgh. So what would you do? Well, you'd have to read, actually, his notes. You really have to read them in German. And that would be primary research. Then you might publish a work saying, this is what Martin Luther taught. Now, if that published work, if, I, if Kit now reads that published work, he's doing secondary research. He's not reading what Martin Luther said. He's doing what I said about what Martin Luther said. And most of us don't even do that level. Most of us then read the encyclopedia that's citing my work about what Martin Luther said. And so they're saying, you know, Ben Edwards said this about Martin Luther. And so they're not reading Luther, they're reading what I said, and you're not reading what I said, you're reading what they said. And, and if you're thinking about like in science, primary research is you conduct the experiment. You actually do the study. And then you publish your results. And when you read those results, you're doing secondary research. You're reading what they said about their results. And almost none of us ever read those studies. We read an article talking about those studies. Or we read a blog post citing an article that talks about those studies. And what are you doing at that point in time? You're not trusting anyone. You're doing your own research, right? No, you're trusting a ton of people. Right? You're, you're trusting that they did the study right. You're trusting they actually reported their findings right. You're trusting the news article accurately reported their findings. You're trusting the blog post is accurately citing that article. And let's just think about hopefully a neutral kind of a thing. If you're trying to buy a car, what kind of car should I buy? Well, don't trust what anyone says. Do your own research. So are you going to go out and start like testing, you know, how, how, what kind of acceleration cars has? You do crash tests on cars to figure out which car you should buy? You're not going to do that. What are you going to do? You read the studies that people did it? Probably not. You're going to read an organization that's looked at a bunch of studies and summarized it. And I didn't trust what anyone said. Of course you trust what people said. And that's true in almost everything we do. It's almost impossible for us to actually not trust someone and do our own research. Now, hopefully, the, the best kind of perspective of someone saying do your own research is don't blindly trust one person. Yeah, good. Don't blindly trust one person. But don't contrast that by saying don't trust people, do your own research. Because you can't. It's almost impossible for you to do any research. So what do you need to do? I think what you really need to do is you need to find a few people who you trust. You have to trust them. You can't avoid this. And so find a few that you think these are people that seem to have a good track record. They seem to be honest brokers. They seem to be, you know, trying to really evaluate the evidence. They're the kind of people who I said earlier that they're, they're willing occasionally to, to go against what everyone else in their tribe is saying. They're, they're willing to occasionally say, you know, I thought this, but I actually changed my mind after I saw more evidence or after I looked at more different things. Those are the people that, I, they're not always right, but they're at least trying to be honest. I'd say, find a few of them, see what they're saying. And so, don't want to debate this, but things like masks, things like vaccines, do your own research, not going to happen. So what are you going to do? You have to find some of these people. What does that mean then, though? Well, I think, secondly, 
that means you should be a lot less strident and dogmatic in your claims. How many of you have ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Right. So the Dunning-Kruger effect basically says this. The, the less skilled and competent you are at something, the better you actually think you are at it. The, 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 the person who really doesn't know anything about something, they take a test and they're like, I think I did pretty well on that. And they did horribly. Because they really don't even know what they don't know. And, and most of the stuff we're looking at, when, when we come out and say, look, I've looked into this, I've done my research, and this is what it is, we're probably much more likely to be demonstrating the Dunning-Kruger effect than actually our expertise. Because we're not doing the primary research, we're probably not doing the secondary research. We're reading a handful of what a few people have said over here, and now have said, I'm an expert on this issue. When the real experts tend to say, you know, there might be some kind of connection between A and B, given circumstances C and D. And the Dunning-Kruger people say, look, A always causes B all the time, no matter what. Because when you actually know what you're talking about, you nuance it. You recognize their exceptions. You qualify it. And so be a lot less dogmatic and strident about these things because you probably have not really done your research on it. Then finally, related to this, watch out for isolated demands for rigor. And I get that uh, language from an article there, which is a fascinating article. Again, I, I don't necessarily agree with that guy's opinions, but I think he's very helpful in pointing out this tendency. Isolated demands for rigor is, is this. Um, you know, a new study comes out and it says the opposite of what you believe. And immediately, you begin to look at it and say, well, I mean, is the sample size a little small, that study? I mean, really, most scientific studies can't even be replicated anyway. And so, I don't know you can really trust this study. And then a study comes out that supports what you believe. And you say, ha-ha, proof! Right? Did you look at the sample size? Do you consider the fact that most scientific studies can't be replicated? No, you do not. Right? And what is that? That is isolated demands for rigor. And I'm convinced that's what we see all the time right now. Whenever you see a study that comes out that, that says something like, you know, transgender children tend to actually, you know, grow out of it. Once they get older, it actually may be harms to these kinds of things. It gets published, and what happens? There's outrage. And what do they do? They pull it. And they, why do they pull it? Well, we, we found that there maybe were some, you know, uh, errors with some of the numbers. There's some issues with it, and so we wanted to pull it down. Now, were there more errors in that study than that? I, I'm convinced there weren't more errors in that study. What's happening? The isolated demands for rigor. We are, we are giving greater scrutiny to this issue because it goes against what we believe to this issue. And it's not just those people out there that do it. It's us. We do this. And so guard yourself against that. Don't, don't be the person that, you know, all these 20 studies here, they're all flawed, but this one study over here proves my point and therefore has no issues. Be, be, try to be equal and fair as you're working through those things. So those are my recommendations. Now I want to get to, I think, some biblical principles that I think are really important for us as we're working through what we're reading online and what we're sharing online. So exercising discernment in what we read. First, don't believe everything. Don't be gullible. Proverbs 14, 15, 
The inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one watches his steps. And I, I am grieved, and I, 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 let me qualify this by saying, I, I also am very skeptical in general of generic statements about is what evangelicals do, is what evangelicals believe, but I generally am grieved that it seems to me often the people I know who are Christians seem more gullible than other people I interact with. And I'm grieved by that because that's not a sign of Christian maturity. Um, being a person of faith does not mean you're a gullible person. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad thing. Proverbs says the naive person believes everything. The inexperienced person believes anything. And so I'd say if it sounds unbelievable, it probably is. If you look at it and you say, that can't be true, you know, maybe lean into that instinct a little bit. Right? Don't, don't immediately latch onto it and say, well, okay. I mean, I read it online. I read it on this you know, post somewhere. Have a little bit of discernment. Be skeptical, especially if it perfectly matches with what you believe. These are the kinds of things people say it's too good to check. You know, and this just, if this were true, it would just be so perfect. Well, it's probably not true then. Because rarely is it that perfect. There's probably a lot more complicating factors that go on. Um, but on the flip side of that, if it contradicts what you had confidence in believing before, cautiously consider it, but do not immediately embrace it. Why? Because a sign of immaturity is being carried about by every wind of doctrine. The person who's like, well, you know what? I used to believe A, but I saw this, and now it completely changed my mind. That's a fool. Which, for what it's worth, the person who just recently went from believing A very aggressively and stridently to now arguing against A very aggressively and stridently is probably not the person to listen to either. Because they're not ready to really talk about it yet. There's a reason Scripture says you don't elevate a novice. Give them some time to grow. Give them some time to mature. And maybe then they'll be very effective at talking about this. But the fact that 10 minutes ago they were arguing for it should say, you know, I'm not sure about this guy's judgment. So be very cautious about those kinds of things. Look for loaded words and misleading headlines. And especially be very skeptical about clickbait headlines because most of us don't read the articles. We read the headline. And we say, oh yeah, I saw that. But when you click through the article, half the time, what do you find out? That's actually not what this story says at all. This story doesn't say what the headline says. I'm glad I clicked through. Otherwise, I would have been really foolish in making the headline claim. Right? Look for equivocation or, or the Mott and Bailey fallacy. I, I, this is um, equivocation is, is where you, you use the same word, but you're constantly shifting meaning in it. I think it's very similar to the Mott and Bailey fallacy. I, how many of you have ever heard of the Mott and Bailey fallacy? All right, so I, this has been very helpful for me in, in understanding how a lot of bad argumentation works in our day. So it comes from the medieval uh, castle in which the, the, the Mott is the, the tower in the middle. It usually has a ditch around it. And so it's, if you're attacked, you come into the Mott, it's really hard for anyone to come and attack you. It's very easy to defend us. The Bailey is the grassy area around there. No one wants to live in the Mott. It's dark. Uh, it's, not, it's very cramped. You only come here when you're under attack. Most of the time, you're out here. The way it works is this. Someone makes a claim. It's a very controversial claim. 
and, and, and they act, they're out here in the Bailey. And the moment you say, well, that can't be true, they come back in to the Mott and say, no, no, this is true. So, so for example, broadly speaking, so, some people were talking about, you know, hardcore feminist kinds of things. You begin to push back and they say, what, you don't think women should be treated, you know, equally as men? It's like, wait, wait a minute. We weren't talking about that a second ago. Right? We were talking out here. And then what do they do? See, we're right and you're wrong. And the moment you leave, they walk right back out here making the same claims. Right? Avoid this yourself, but also be aware when other people are doing it because they're not being honest brokers. They're not really being honest with you. And so watch out for this kind of fallacy. Uh, check the facts. And, and this is such a frustrating thing because I don't know of a single fact-checking site that I trust. <laughs> because they, they don't usually actually check facts. But I don't think we should respond to that by not caring about facts. It still should matter to us at some level. <clears throat> and so if I can say this, because someone has a, a, a link that's, that's like, well, they source what they said, there's a link. If you're, if you're not sure, maybe like go read that link. Figure out, is that what that person said? Is this what the study actually pointed to? Um, are they really rightly interpreting what's being said here? Because I do it from time to time, and I'm not very confident that many people are being honest brokers and how they're interpreting so many things. And if you don't have time to check the facts, maybe don't share it. Maybe don't believe it. You say, well, how am I supposed to know what's right and true? Well, maybe we'll get there. Avoid being naive, but also I'd say avoid being overly skeptical. And then this is, I think, I think what I would encourage is a healthy skepticism. Because being naive is, I believe anything I say. But I can do the opposite of that. And I can just believe nothing. And I can find reasons to doubt everything. And that's not a biblical approach either. I think I should have a healthy skepticism. I should generally not just immediately embrace anything I hear, both from people I tend to trust and people I don't tend to trust. But I should be willing to listen and, and, and to consider, are they making solid arguments? Are they pointing to truths that I already know? Are they building on these kinds of things? And so we, we, we want to, to cautiously and humbly draw conclusions, um, being firm, where we know we can be firm because Scripture is firm, and being not firm, where we don't know where we can be firm because Scripture is not firm. Secondly, related to don't be naive and gullible, is don't believe the first thing you hear. Look for good counterarguments. The one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and disgrace for him. And the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. And, and this is where... Um, so I, I hope I can say this without sounding too crazy. I generally think I read pretty well. I think I've, I've got a decent education. I'm generally a thoughtful person. And I, I remember when COVID came out, I started trying to read all these different studies about, you know, where it came from and how it might come and, and all, these, all these things. And I read one, I'd be like, that, yeah, that sounds really good. And I read the second one, it's the exact opposite. You're like, you know what? That actually sounds pretty convincing too. 
And I realized th this is the kind of thing where if I just read the first one, I could have come away and been like, this has to be it. They read the second one, I'm like, I maybe don't know as much as I think I know about this area. Right? And that's why I need to do that. If I find something, I, in some ways I should say, what's the best argument against us? And I want to really consider the best argument against it. I want to look for that. I want to seek it out. Third, rejoice in the truth. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. And here in particular, I think we have a bad tendency online to almost want the worst things to be true. Um, if, if I could, again, dip my toe into politics, but hopefully in a bipartisan way, <laughs> right? Um, <clears throat> if, if you are someone who really hates Donald Trump, and it becomes very clear, I mean, such that any, any honest progress to say he actually did not mishandle classified documents, he did not obstruct justice, he, he did not commit racketeering, and he's cleared of all these charges. But part of you say, oh man, I kind of wish he had. Right. And notice that that's different than saying he did it and I wish he was received the, the right consequence for that. We're saying he didn't actually do it. Or, if you don't really like Joe Biden, and they finish all their uh, you know, research and all their reports, and it comes out, he really wasn't involved in any kind of pay-for-profit kind of a thing, and, and he's, he's cleared, and it's such that any report would you say, man, I was kind of hoping he would. I think at that point in time, we're not really rejoicing in the truth anymore. I think we're rejoicing in unrighteousness. We, we wish there was more evil in the world than there was. Instead of saying, you know what? I think it was C.S. Lewis. I don't want to do the perfect quote. But I'm thankful my enemy is not as evil as I thought he was. Right? I should be able to think that way and rejoice in that way. And I think far too often we do not act that way and we do not think that way. Because often we're more, more concerned with scoring points than we are with the truth. Such that I don't care if it's true or not, I'm going to use it against you because it makes you look bad. As Christians, we need to rejoice in the truth, and especially, we need to be willing to admit, I was wrong. I said, how often do you see an argument online where someone says that? You know what the problem is? The problem is us. So we're probably not always right when we're making this argument. So sometimes we need to be the one that says, you know what? I was wrong. And, and you, you were right in this area. Because we need to be people who rejoice in the truth. Fourth, this is a big one. Avoid gossip. The one who reveals secrets is a constant gossip. Avoid someone with a big mouth. A person who's passing by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. I, I have the phrase there you've probably heard before, don't stick your nose in unless you want it to get broken. Unfortunately, far too often, the online world makes us think this is my business and it's not my business. We have this sense that I need to be commenting on everything that happens. It's so crazy. Some, some big celebrity dies and everyone feels the need to go on and be like, oh, I'm so sad. Well, why do I care if you're sad? Why is this about you now? Because everything's about me, right? And everyone needs to know my thoughts. 
and what I think about this issue. And often, no one needs to know what you think about this issue because this isn't your issue. Well, it's a public, you know, it's a public thing. It's in the news. Okay. Are oh, you remember that church? Do you go to that school? Then why do you care? Why are you talking about these things? We need to be a lot more ready, I think, to say, this is gossip, brothers. This is not my business. And I don't feel the need to say anything about it because people who is their business, I'm going to pray for them that they handle it well. I'm not, I don't know the information. I don't know what's going on. And I, and I say this because I, I, in a few situations, I think I've had a pretty good sense of some things that were happening and issues that were popping up online. And a lot of people were convinced they knew A was happening. And I knew 100% for certain A was not happening. And they're all reacting because they're all upset because A is happening. And one of the things I have to remind myself is, you know what? Most of the time, I'm not in the position to actually know that. And why do they know A is happening? Well, this person over here said it. Obviously, they didn't know what they were talking about then. And so, it's not my business. I need to avoid it. Finally, exercise discernment in what you share and post. General principle is this. You're responsible for what you say. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. How many careless words do we put online? In Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, sin is unavoidable. The one who controls his lips is prudent. So maybe don't post as much. Maybe don't say as much online. I, I, I hope I don't sound judgmental here. I, I find myself periodically looking online, social media, these kinds of things, reading through comments. And there are times I'm amazed how often someone posts online. And I think, I barely have time to read all that they're saying. How are they having time to write all of that they're saying? And, and, and it could be they are much more capable than I am. And that might be true. But I think for a lot of us, we need to dial back a little bit more what we're doing online. Because we also need to stop and think before you post. Do you see someone who speaks too soon? This is a verse that's fascinating to me. As you read through the verse of the book of Proverbs, you know what's pretty clear? I mean, the fool is basically hopeless. But there's more hope for a fool than the person who speaks too soon. And online media just begs us to speak too soon. I mean, it used to be you had to like, you write a letter, put it in your drawer, think about it for a day, decide whether to send it. Now what do you do? Online for thousands of people to see. Right away. Right. It's not healthy. And so I, I, Tim Challies has some, some suggestions to think about. I would encourage you to, to maybe read through those and consider them. Fourth, do not bear false witness. This is the, the flip side of gossip. When we say something that is true, it should be true. And we can lie in multiple ways. One way we can lie is by manipulating the truth. And, and, and this grieves my heart when I see pastors 
who, who will say something. And then someone comes back and says, well, that's not really true. And they say, well, that's, you know, technically this part was true. And so I wasn't lying. And it's like, I mean, you are being very dishonest. It's very clear what you said was not the truth. I don't care if there was a grain of truth in it. That's not, that's not the standard. That's not how you would treat anyone else. That's not how you treat your children. You would say, well, son, if there's a grain of truth, then I take it all back. And yet we do that ourselves online. We should know better. If you don't know it's true, don't post it. And, and certainly, is it better to say, if true, or I don't know if this is true, but yeah, that's certainly better. Right? But it's probably pretty rare you need to do that. Uh, most of us aren't journalists that are trying to break news. We can take time. We, we don't have to be the one to tell everyone else information that we don't know is true. Because you hurt others when you share false stories online. I, I think you do damage the reputation of Christians. Again, I am not someone who is overly concerned with the, the public witness or evangelical witness because I, I just think that, that concept is way too fuzzy. But I am very concerned with my personal witness and the people I know. And if you're a member of my church with a bunch of people who are in my community, then I think you are damaging our reputation when you are sharing false information online. And you're misleading others in the church. Because we read people we know more charitably, we tend to believe people we know more charitably. And so this is godly so-and-so. This is sister so-and-so. And she shared this. And it must be true because she wouldn't share it if it isn't true. And so now you've let other people to, to believe things that are not true. And then you lose credibility. And this is, again, huge for you as a pastor. Because if you keep sharing stuff that's not true, people should rightly begin to conclude you don't have a lot of discernment. And so when then you come to them and you say, this is what God wants you to do for your life, they would rightly say, I don't know. So why blow your credibility online over stuff that doesn't matter? Don't be quick to speak or be angry. There's a lot of that online. There's the outrage of the day. You get on, what are we going to be upset about now? Right? And perhaps you found yourself online getting upset because it tends to feed that kind of a thing. And so realize this is not good. It's not good for me to be upset all the time. I, I really think there's a lot of wisdom in people who have said, we weren't really made to actually bear the weights of all the evils in the world. It is crushing to consider all the things that are happening. So why do you need to know all the things that are happening in the world? Maybe cut out some of that thing that you say, it's not really the most significant thing for me to know what's happening in Idaho. What relevance does it have for my life? So finally, get off or at least exercise discernment not to spend too much time online. I think one of the best things you can do is decide what am I using social media for? What am I using YouTube for? What am I using these things for? And to decide that not how have I been using them, that might be good to consider, <laughs> but why should I use them? What value do they give me? If you say, I don't think they give me any value, get rid of them. 
if you say, you know, I think it's really helpful for me to be able to communicate to people in my congregation. Okay. You don't communicate. Get off. You say, I think it's going to be really helpful for me to see, you know, just what people, to, to have a place where people can send me messages. Okay. I check your messages. Get off. I do it because I want to be able to follow the Red Wings and I follow journalists. Okay. Craft your timeline in that way. Get on, look at the news, get off. The reason that's so important is because all of these things are designed, I want you to get on to say, but there's more you could do. You can spend more time here. They're designed that way. And so you've got to try to force yourself not to do that. I, I, I'm constantly challenged by this quote from John Piper. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook would be to prove at the last day that prayerless was not from lack of time. So go back to the beginning. We need discernment. How are we going to get it? Not from scrolling. We're looking for truth in the wrong places there. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer.